Communication technologies have uh, continued to advance from one generation to the next. So we no longer use the can and the string any longer. And unless you're my parents uh, or at my parents' house, you don't need to use one of these rotary dial phones. Uh, those are fun. Um, or you don't have to have one of those phones that have uh, wires attached to them. Most of our children don't know what those things are. Uh, you don't even have to have one of those um, ones in the house that is attached to the wall and you can like, move from it, the wireless phone. Now we have uh, iPhones and Androids, whatever. As we've skipped through the advances in technology, um, we don't have to any longer be limited to voice calls, but now we can have our FaceTime or Skype or whatever other manner of uh, video call you choose, because we carry around in our pockets these small little computers. It's pretty amazing that we can communicate with one another through handheld computers and uh, see one another from thousands and thousands of miles away. Imagine the benefits that this has made for those that have been mobilized to other parts of the world where before it would take months and months before a letter would arrive and a letter would be returned. Now, even in a deployed setting, so many of our soldiers, marines, uh, sailors and airmen are able to communicate with their families even from remote locations because of this advance in technology. It's, it's wonderful. Um, however, while we can see our loved ones' faces and hear their voices, it's wonderful, there are certain things that are limited when we're from a distance. For instance, if, if I were away, say, at some kind of a school or away in some kind of mobilization, I might be able to talk to my wife and I might be able to tell her how much I love her and see her beautiful face, but I really can't help her and protect her from a hairy, scary spider, right? I, I can say, hey, there it is, run away, but I can't take care of it for her. I can't go and turn on a, a breaker in the electrical panel that's been tripped. I can't do that for her from a distance. I can't fill the car with gas through FaceTime. It doesn't work that way. So I can't help her with those things. And I certainly can't give my wife a hug uh, through FaceTime. I can try my best. I, I tried with my son and daughter while they were away. Say, hey, listen, I'm hugging you right now. Can you feel it? You know, and I don't know. They humored me and said they could. But I know that they couldn't really feel it. <laughs> Because you can't touch one another through a, a telephone or anything like this. We have a God who is not just a God way out there, but a God who is at hand. He's a very present help in trouble. We get to navigate through this life day in and day out knowing that our God is with us and that our God is caring that our God is near. This morning, in preparation for our participation in the Lord's Supper, we want to admire our sovereign God with a view toward desiring His searching and revealing way within us. We're in Psalm 139. We're going to read that throughout the morning as we study through it uh, briefly. Obviously, we can't study it in detail. Last Sunday, Pastor Bill challenged us to think about what we're thinking about. And that was a, a vital and well-placed challenge. And then last Sunday night, we had an amazing time of worship that had the theme of God's unsearchable 
greatness. Well, this morning, we want our God, who is able to search us fully and know us fully, we want to not just know that He can search us, but we want to welcome Him to search us. We want to desire His searching and leading way. See, when God is leading us, we're being led by an all-knowing, always present, and completely powerful or almighty God. This God that we seek to know us, search us, and lead us knows the end from the beginning. He knows it all. And not only does He know all these things, and not only is He with us, uh, in concept, but he goes with us on this journey that he lays out before us. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. We're in Psalm 139. I'm going to start at the end of the, the psalm. Look at verses 23 and 24. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the conclusion to this psalm. And I want to ask you, do you desire, do you welcome God's knowledge of you? Do you desire God to search you and test you? Do you desire for God to lead you? See, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you've, you've recognized that you're a sinner and your sin would send you into a, a place of enmity with God and a res- the result of this being completely separated from God not only in this life but for all of eternity in judgment that I deserve. You recognize that you're a sinner. You've turned from your sin because you recognize this was not helping me. Turn from your sin and you found the solution to be that God sent His Son Jesus Christ to bear your sin debt on the cross. That God charged Jesus guilty for your sin. And that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And the reason you know that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice is because God raised Him from the dead on the third day. And Jesus lives forevermore, triumphant over death, triumphant over Satan, and triumphant over your sin. You've recognized the benefit of being born again in Jesus Christ. And if you know Christ as your Savior, of course you want Him to examine you. Of course you want Him to search you, to test you, and then lead you as I want Him to search, examine, and lead me. Because we need this. And so David is going to give us some glorious help in understanding this process as he unfolds a little bit of God's character in Psalm 139. This comes in stanzas or verses. Uh, The first six verses, David is going under the inspiration of the Spirit, going to tell us about the fact that God knows everything. He's omniscient. In the second stanza, verses 7 through 12, David is going to discuss the fact that God is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go that is apart from where God is. He's omnipresent. And then in verses 13 through 18, the third stanza, he's going to speak gloriously about God's 
almighty power, His omnipotence, how God is not just um, off in a distance, sort of in control, but absolutely in the minutia of life from the embryonic stage through the structure of our body stage right to our death. This is how powerful God is and how involved He is in our lives. And because David sees all of these things, he acknowledges God's knowledge, His presence, and His power. He says, God, I know You can do this, and I want You to search me. I want You to search me. And I hope, it's my prayer, that this would be a fruitful time, that that's exactly how you and I will trans, uh, traverse through this passage this morning. That we'll recognize who God is and say, God, I want you to search me. I want you to try me. And I want you to lead me. That I might follow you all the days of my life. So, that leads us to the first stanza. And we don't have a lot of time this morning because we are celebrating the Lord's table this morning. As we consider this, we're going to examine the one who knows us. Verses 1-6, through please, to start with. This is a God whose knowledge is intimate. This is the one who searches us. A God whose knowledge is intimate. Verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay Your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He starts by talking of God's intimate knowledge. God's omniscience. But it's not generic omniscience. It's not knowing about events and times and places, though those things are true as well. He's talking about knowing me. Knowing my way. Knowing my thoughts. And even before I say that thing, He knows what I'm about to say. This is a majestic God knowing the end from the beginning. And as... David unfolds this. He talks about the fact that God in verse 1 knows his heart. In verse 2 knows his thoughts. In verse 3 knows his actions. And in verse 4 knows his words. This is an intimate, thorough, exhaustive knowledge. Jesus spoke this way as well. In John chapter 10 and verse 14, just listen to these words from John 10, 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are His. He knows everything about you. He knows all of your strengths. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows all of your experiences. He knows all of your troubles. He knows all of your sin. He knows all the baggage that you carry around. He knows everything you've experienced. And yet this one that knows us that thoroughly 
offers to us. Salvation offers to us a relationship. Offers to adopt us into his own family as sons and daughters. Offers to us his willingness to place his spirit within us. His spirit then bears witness within us that we are his children. The spirit of God that dwells in us cries out in us and cries out through us. Abba, Father, this one who knows everything about, knows everything about us, still says, I want you to come into my family. This should make us in awe. I, I know me. I know 24 hours and 7 days a week me. I know me in my best moments when I'm filled with the Spirit. And I know me in my worst moments when I'm filled with my flesh, when I'm craving something I ought not crave, when I'm thinking something I ought not think. I know me. Would I choose me? Would I welcome me in? But this God who knows everything says, come, be a part of my family. I want to give you, I want to give you something you could never, ever earn and that you never, ever could deserve. This is the God that we worship. This is why we come. We come here and we sing praises to God. Sounds a little different than what we hear on the radio, doesn't it? We sing praises to God for Him. He's worthy of every ounce of my affection and every ounce of my breath, every moment of my thought. He's worthy of this. David says he knows everything about me. He searches me. And this is an an intimate searching. He uses the word winnow. If you have a King James Version, you you see the word winnow in there. It has the idea of taking the the wheat that's been harvested. It's all out there. And and first you take the shovel and you pick it up and you throw it in the air. And the the, the wind carries away the chaff. And then the heavy rest of it falls down to the ground. And then you take another instrument called a sieve. And you start individually putting it in there. You you shake it out and, and you start picking out of the stones. The stones don't go out. The only the wheat stays. It's a very thorough process. So he's not talking about this far out knowledge. He's talking about intimate personal knowledge. God is searching us. He knows everything about us. It's, it's an amazing concept. God knows our words in verse 4 before we speak them. And remember this. Happy Sunday. Um, Jesus said that your words are a revelation of your heart. Maybe that should cause some of us to spend some moments and say, Lord, my my heart's not doing so well right now. Because the words that are coming to my mind and out of my mouth are not reflective of godliness, truth, and righteousness. And so we need the Lord's help. Thankfully, even though He knows this about us, He is willing to forgive us through Christ. It's good news Verse 5, God is before us and behind us. That You hem me in. Now, think about it this way. Now, have you ever been hemmed in and you didn't want to be there? That's me on a, an airplane. I hate being on an airplane. I'm not afraid of dying. 
Though I came pretty close, I think, one time on, on a plane, I'm not afraid of dying. I am afraid of being in between two people on the plane like this because I don't, I don't take the armrests. I, I just don't do it. I won't do it. So I do this the whole flight. I'm like this. I hate it. Hemmed in. Can't stand it. I don't even put my seat back back because I don't want to take the person's room in front, you know, behind me. So like the person's seat back is in front of me, my seat's up, and the people around me, I feel hemmed in and I hate this. But that, that's not verse 5. We're not talking about hemming, being hemmed in and hating it. It's God's in front of me, God's behind me, God's to my right, God's to my left, He's there, there's nowhere I can go, I can't get away from it. And, and then he says in verse 5, he says, and you lay your hand upon me. I don't know. If you have children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, whatever the case may be, that you really have an affection for those people, those little people. I just, I, my little girl, my little boy, and you know, even my big boys and girls, um, they, they're around. I, I love, I love to put my arm around them. I love to give them a hug. There, there's a tenderness between a dad and his children or a husband and wife, there's something about that touch. It's important. And David relates God's presence with this intimate, kind, loving touch that lets you know, I love you. But all this searching, right now in verses 1 through 6, he's not saying, God, search me. He says, you search me. You know me. This is a fact. It's already done. You know everything about me. And here I am, a fact. Here I am, hemmed in all around. And you still love me. Which is why, in verse 6, he responds with a verse of praise. Listen to what he says. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Why would God love me like this? Why would he love me like this? Because of who he is. This is who God is. He loves sinners like me. And he loves sinners like you. And it's clear. Romans 5.8 makes it abundantly clear. God, present tense, demonstrates his love for us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. This is good news. Good news everywhere. God's knowledge is intimate. He knows us. Uh, he's for us. I don't know if I have this on the screen. Romans 8, 31 and 32. I don't, I don't think I put it up there. I did. There it is. Look at that. can't remember my own notes. In Romans chapter 8, we, we studied this recently, so it's just a refresher for our thoughts. In verses 31 and 32, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he also, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What, what a glorious God to love us like this. So we're searched by this all-knowing God. That's the first stanza. Second stanza, we are searched by this all-present God. Look at verses 7 through 12, and I have to pick up the speed. Where shall I go from your presence, or where shall I flee from your, excuse me, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me uh, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, this is amazing. Now we're talking about God's presence. We kind of got a glimpse of it at the end of the last stanza. Now he unfolds it more fully here. This is a personal presence, not just a generic presence. David uses these extremes in verse 8, height and depth. In verse 9, east and west. And in verses 11 and 12, darkness and light. Ah, I know, I'm a, very, I'm a theologically astute person. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So I'm going to go in the dark, and he won't find me there. Nope. <laughs> darkness and light, they make no difference. You are there, and you know all, and, and you're not uh, set aside by any of these things. The question I might ask, if, if we're reading this, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, verse 9, right? Why are you running, David? Why are you running? Where are you headed? I'm going to run as fast as I can. I'm, going to, I'm actually going to mount up on an eagle, and I'm going to, I'm going to go as fast as I can. I'm going to put on the, the wings of uh, one of those super Avenger thing people, and, and I'm going to fly a, a Millennium Falcon or whatever your name is, and he's going to, I'm going to fly really, really fast. Where are you going? He's there and there. Doesn't matter how fast you go, you can try to catch a catch a ride on the rays of the sun, and you're not going to outrun God. He's he's everywhere. That's what David is saying. But it's not. He's again. He's not saying this like, man, I can't get rid of him. What he says in verse ten is even there when I'm running, even there when I'm trying to hide, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand. That's the hand of fellowship, the hand of power, the hand of authority, the hand of caring at this moment. Your right hand shall, what does it say? Hold me. Wow. So God is everywhere, and it's not everywhere for the sake of just scaring us. God is everywhere for the sake of taking care of us. Now, he's not doing our bidding for us. What it means is, God is, you, 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 everywhere you go, no matter what you're doing, God is present. This means I don't have to be afraid, no matter where I am. Now, don't go somewhere dumb, don't, on purpose, don't put yourself in danger on purpose, that's foolish. But if the Lord sends you somewhere for some reason, and you're in a dangerous circumstance, you're not outside of God's care. And that doesn't mean that God won't let anything bad happen to you because bad things have happened to many people. But just because something bad happens doesn't mean that the Lord's not there. And it doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't care. It just means that in his presence, he had a design for you that maybe would not be your first choice or second or third or fifth, right? But he's there. God knows and he's there. We have, I, we can do this. I want us to turn to two passages that are in the Psalms, okay? Psalm 23, it's a familiar passage. We're talking about God's presence, and we want to understand that this is a, 
a good kind of presence. And God is leading, and it's a good kind of leading. It's a leading presence that, that cares for and provides what is needed. Psalm 23, look at verses 1 through 4. David is again the penman. God, of course, is the author. And it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Listen carefully. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sometimes in the valley of death, what happens? Death. That's why it's called the valley of the shadow of death. So God might lead us along, and He's with us, and it's wonderful, but death sometimes might ensue. Pain sometimes might ensue, but our loving, faithful God is, is there with us, and He's leading us. This is glorious. Take a look at Psalm 91. The first two verses of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Think about it this way, friends. If you're entrusting yourself to the Lord, right, it's because you know the steadfast love of the Lord. If you're entrusting yourself to the Lord, it's because you know the faithfulness of the Lord. If you're entrusting yourself to the Lord truly, it's because you know the saving work of Jesus Christ. So if the Lord leads us, and He is our fortress and our refuge, and we were to die in that scenario, what's next? Face to face. So I have gone from His security in this life to His everlasting presence. That's an upgrade. That's an upgrade. And this is why knowing the Lord is so important. I don't have to fear if a disease comes along and they say everyone's going to die. Mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine. I'm not turning this to political things. I'm not at all. What I'm saying is I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. My life, my breath, everything I am, particularly my spirit and my soul, have been entrusted to God. And if I'm taken out of this life, it just means glory. And that's a wonderful thing. Psalm 17, 8 says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wing. So we're talking about God's presence. It's a safe place. It, it covers every area of our lives. And so we want to welcome this glorious reality. Head back to Psalm 139, Psalm 139, and we're just going to touch on this next stanza, speaking about God's power, but I want to make sure that we understand that when, when David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks about God's power, he really personalizes it. It's not generic power, like, 
you know, blowing up the side of a mountain. Wow, that's amazing. Look at how that power or like fireworks go up. And wow, look at, look at all those colors. It burst into the air. It's great. There's power. Not talking about that. We're talking about intimate power that impacts my life. And so we're talking about a God whose power is supreme. Look at verses 13 and following. Psalm 139, verses 13 and following. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Now this is an incredible passage, talking about God and his creative power. But not not just let there be light and there was light, as glorious as that is, and not just separating the, the firmament above the earth, remember that? And not just causing the, there to be water upon the face of the earth and separating the land mass, not just that. Not just causing there to be trees of the field, birds of the sky, fish of the sea, cattle of the field, and everyone's favorite, the creeping things that creep upon the earth. All of these things are, are wonderful displays of God's power, but none of them match God's crowning jewel when he created man. Back in Genesis, or back at the beginning, we've got God forming Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living spirit. And of course, he does a similar thing with Eve when he takes the rib out of Adam's side and then breathes into Eve's nostrils the breath of life. That's just at the beginning. He's talking about God's dealing with us in time, not just at the beginning. God weaves us together. He fashions us together in our mother's womb. His eyes see our unformed substance. That's the word for embryo in the Hebrew. Then he sees our structure. There's a, there's a word in there for basically skeletal arrangement in the Hebrew. So the very beginning, embryo, and the forming of the skeleton and the forming of our body and all the things that take place during those wonderful weeks of pregnancy. But before there was even a day outside of that womb, God already wrote down how many days we would live on the earth. You know what God just did? He just said, I know the beginning and the end of you. And I'm involved in the beginning and the end of you. This is God's power. He knows everything. He is everywhere. And he is almighty. Now we talk about sovereignty. Ultimate rulership. And sovereignty would be scary if someone had all the knowledge and all the power and none of the concern. 
Because then there's unilateral destruction at the hands of that sovereign one. But God describes himself to us, for us, so we'd understand that his sovereignty in light of his wisdom and in light of his power, that he is everywhere. And he talks about it in such tender and intimate terms that we can understand very clearly how much he cares for us. We don't have time to really dive into that that much. But know this, uh, throughout the, the course of this psalm, he, he mentions that you lay, your, you lay your hand on me. We mentioned it already. In verse 10, he talks about how you lay your right hand upon me. Verse 17, you've got all these thoughts for me. There are so many thoughts from, about me, and yet when I awake, I'm, I'm still with you. And Psalm 34, 18, I'll just draw your attention to that. You don't need to turn. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So we just took a little survey through here. The last stanza, we, we're not going to dive into the whole thing. It talks about agreeing with God about certain elements. And then in verses 23 and 24, having already described how, who God is and what He's like and what His power is and His authority is uh, and his, his presence and knowledge, He says in verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Well, He already said, you know me. He said that right at the beginning. Yeah, but now, now He's saying, you have searched me. I want that. This is the response. I want you to search me. And I want to ask you, we talked a bit about a number of items about who God is. Do you want God to search you? Do you want Him to know you? Do you want Him to expose your heart to you? Not to the world, but to you. You want Him to lead you. I think for believers, I think it's a pretty clear and easy answer, right? What do I do as a believer if in the process of this searching, God unveils something sinful, something deviant from Him? What do I do? Flog myself? Beat myself? Climb a mountain on my knees hoping that someday, somehow, God will forgive me? No, it, it, this is, this is, it's very similar to our arriving at the place of being born again, right? We see our sin. We recognize this is not fruitful. This is contrary to God. This is not what I was designed for. God, I'm a sinner. We confess our sin. We agree with God about this sin. I want to see this sin the same way you do. We recognize it. He unveils it. We say, God, I want to forsake this. And I want to follow you. So we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ. Not for salvation, if we've already been saved. We're turning for mercy and we're turning for grace that God would help me not to wallow in my sin. This is not who I was designed to be. This is not what I was made for. I was made for greater things than this. And so we turn from our sin and turn to our Savior, and He gives us mercy, forgiveness, and grace, that means help. He comes and He gives us the help we need to not cater to sin any longer.